0: Thank you uh, Phil. Thank you Melissa and uh, go ahead and get in your Bible if you would to job chapter 38 job chapter 38 I think uh, one of the most difficult aspects of life is that it, there's so many things that always change. Uh, not all change is bad, not all change is good. Um, I thank God for the seven godly faithful deacons we have. Uh, Brother Chuck Lakes is going to uh, step up and be our new Chairman of Deacons. I thank God for such a quality, great man to step into the shoes of a quality, great man. And um, we're blessed. We're blessed. We are in a series on Sunday nights on uh, Bible doctrine. Uh, I want us as a church to be people who understand why. We believe what we believe. Of course, our Christian walk begins with learning what. What does the Bible teach to be sound doctrine? What does the Bible teach to be good Christian behavior? Christian growth then continues with learning why. Why sincere Christians believe and do the things they do. Last Sunday evening, we uh, finished three weeks talking about our 35th subject. We were talking about the great adversary of our creator, Lucifer. And we learned that we have the means to defeat him as Christian people, and uh, thankfully, uh, he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. Lucifer is the great dragon, that old serpent, the roaring lion, the adversarian tempter, and the deceiver of the world, but he is no match for his creator, the God of the Bible, Jehovah God. But what a wonderful promise that when you and I cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and choose to draw nigh to to God, that God promises to draw nigh to us and that Satan will flee from us because our God is greater than he is. Now the 36th subject in our series holds great fascination in the minds and hearts of both Christian and non-Christian alike. In fact, the subject is so fascinating to many that they pay more attention to these creatures than they do their creator. And though we could spend a lot of time on the subject, I only want to spend what will likely be uh, two weeks on the subject of angels. Um, I don't hesitate to teach this message because of the difficulty of the subject, like Last Wednesday when I taught that, I thought that was a difficult subject. I I hesitate to teach on this because I I think that this is so much of how we think and we don't have as much practical application to this. But I, I want everybody here to understand there is an unseen spiritual realm. Lucifer isn't the only part of that unseen spiritual realm. See, see, we so often make the weapons of our warfare physical weapons, carnal weapons, when in fact the real battle in our marriage and the real battle in our lives as parents and grandparents, our real battle in the workplace and in our ministry, it's a spiritual battle. Now, angels are often mentioned in the Bible, and if we're not careful, they can become more prominent to us than Jesus Christ is to us. In fact, some people are so focused on angels and what angels are doing that they lose sight of the fact that God is working in our world. Uh, We won't take time in these next two weeks to, to discuss things like in Genesis 6, whether the sons of God were angels or the godly line of Seth, though I personally believe it's the godly lineage of Seth. But I do want us to take time to understand what these wonderful creatures of God are and what they are not. The word angel appears 297 times in 283 different verses in the Bible, and 180 of those appearance of the word angel are in the New Testament. They appear in some way from the book of Genesis all the way to the last book of Revelation. But when we read the word angel, it does not always mean a heavenly being created by God. The word angel literally means messenger. And though it may shock you at times uh, when you're reading, understand that when you read the word angel, at times it may be a human messenger sent by God. And in the Old Testament, you might be reading about the angel of the Lord, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ sent before He began to have a body in the virgin womb of Mary, and He was the messenger of the Lord. And so we always turn to quite a lot of Scriptures. We'll do that a little more than usual tonight. But if you're able to stand, if you would stand in honor of God's Word, I want to pull the curtain back a bit on the unseen spiritual realm, and the title of my thought is just the angels of God. In Job 38. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth, and declare if thou hast understanding? Who hath laid the measure thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Thank you, might be seated. The word angel first appears in the Bible in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, linked with Hagar, Sarai's maid. Angels actually first appear on the biblical timeline as morning stars and the sons of God when they sang and shouted as Jehovah laid the cornerstone of the foundation of the earth during creation. We we saw that in verse 7, uh, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, you and I could never know what happened back then when God called everything into existence uh, from nothing were it not for the fact that he decided to reveal some of what happened back then to us in the Bible. There are foolish and ignorant people who accept by faith that nothing created everything through a big bang to produce a universe that is filled with detailed organization. And there are other people, and I think most of that crowd are in places like this tonight, who just by faith believe the biblical account that God created everything from nothing, and that because God is a God of order, the natural world is a world of order. Now, to me, what you and I read is one of the most interesting sections of the Bible because God personally speaks and he answers Job. Now, at this particular time, when the book of Job began, Job was the best and most godly man on the planet. God himself said so. But through this deep trial that didn't last just a day or a week, through this deep trial that went on over the course of months, Job slowly became proud proud in his trial. As wave after wave of accusation and denial and rejection from family and friend hit him, instead of justifying God, uh, he called on God to answer him. Keep your hand and go back to Job chapter 31. By the way, I'm not being critical of Job. Uh, l- listen, that nobody here could, could take this. And, and I think preachers and, and people often too carelessly criticize these great men and women of God in the Bible. But in the midst of this adversity, when this kind of debate, discussion, accusations with his three friends, in Job chapter 31 verse 35, Job says, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. So in his desperation and in his pride and in his wounded situation, he called God, why don't you answer me? Well, uh, God did personally answer Job, and you can go back to chapter 38, and God expected him to hear it and to take what he had to say like a man. Job 38 verse 1 says, And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Notice the singular pronouns. God is not answering Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. God is not answering Job and his three friends, plus a man named Elihu, had five chapters of rambling after he listened to 30 chapters of their debate. God answers Job. Remember, in your Bible and in my Bible, pronouns with T, thee, thy, and thine are singular pronouns. Ye, you, and yours are plural pronouns. This is God answering Job. And if you have a Schofield Bible, and I do, your Schofield notes are wrong. The Schofield notes says, it might be paraphrased, then Jehovah answered for on the behalf of Job. That is a lie. By the way, I have a study Bible. I recommend a study Bible, but always use the Bible more highly than the study notes. Notice what God says, Gird up now thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee, answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And God is going to go on to ask 83 rhetorical questions of Job, all unanswerable. And this was God's personal message to Job. He answered him. And he begins by correcting him by basically saying in verse 4, where were you when I did all this stuff? Job, you are the greatest man on the planet. You are the most godly man on the entire face of the earth. But understand, you are not anything compared to who I am as God, the infinite creator. That's a humbling personal question. When you and I consider our own pride and our own gifts, Our own pride in our own knowledge, our own pride in our own successes, our own pride in our own appearance. But as God begins helping Job face the infinite difference between himself and Job, we learn something of angels. We're told, and we've read it twice now, that they were present in heaven when God created the earth and that they were singing and shouting praise to God when he spoke the earth into existence from nothing. Who are these angels, these morning stars, these sons of God who were with the Creator in heaven before the earth existed? Please first go in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. First, number one, there are three orders of angelic creatures which were made aware of in the Scripture. By the way, there being three orders of angelic creatures is no surprise because our Creator is a threefold being. He stamped his threefold image all over creation. A perfect, a complete person is body, soul, and spirit. There are three heavens. There are three realms in creation time, space, and matter. There are three aspects of time, past, present, and future. There are three aspects of space X, Y, and Z. There are three aspects of matter, solid, liquid, and vapor. It all has the fingerprint of a threefold creator, and so it shouldn't surprise us at all that there are also three different orders of angelic creatures, only one of which we typically think of. And the first one is not one we think of often. It's the seraphim. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. This is Isaiah's vision of heaven. Each one had six wings. So he's describing them. Two, they covered his face. With twain, he covered his feet. With twain, he did fly. A One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. By the way, he's a prophet. He's probably the most eloquent writer and speaker in the Bible and the thing that was his greatest strength in the presence of God was no good. <laughs> I am an undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts by the way he saw Jesus. Verse 6 Then flew one of the seraphims unto me having a live coal in his hand which he'd taken with tongs from off the altar and we'll stop there. Now the meaning of the name seraphim is debated but many say it means burning ones or fiery They're spoken of only directly by name here, and we'll see in a second that the four beasts mentioned in Revelation seem to also be seraphim, though they're not called that. We saw and read how they have six wings two cover their face, two cover their feet, and two they fly with. They each have a face, a voice, feet, hands, in addition to six wings. In fact, We'll see in a moment if these are the same beasts that we see in Revelation, one as a face of a lion, the other a face of a calf, the third a face of an eagle, and the fourth a face of a man. Notice they powerfully speak the same language Isaiah spoke and they serve directly around the throne of God. The language of angels is the language of the person listening. They minister around the throne of God and we read what they say, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the earth is full of His glory. Go back in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4 and we'll read the only other description we have of these particular angelic beings. Revelation chapter 4. Beginning of Revelation chapter 4 begins with a rapture as John goes through an open door to heaven. And uh, Revelation chapter 4 are a description of the things that John saw first when he had been taken to heaven. And notice in the midst of his description in Revelation 4 verse 6, and he says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. notice that's a new description for them the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now because of the similarity of their message with The seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6, because of their presence around the throne of God, because they have six wings, these beasts here in Revelation are equated with the seraphim back from Isaiah chapter 6. In addition to what we learned back in Isaiah 6, these seraphim, it says they're full of eyes. Now these could be real eyes. They could be like what we would call the eyes on the tail of a peacock. It could be just symbolic language, speaking of the fact that they're totally aware of everything going on around them, and quite frankly, uh, anybody who says they know for sure doesn't really know for sure. We will all find out someday if you know Christ when we see Jesus. But the task and the role of the seraphim seems to be to praise Jehovah's holiness and the power, and they do this around the throne of God in heaven. We're told nothing of their relationship with mankind or the earth, though one in the book of Isaiah did take a coal from off the altar of God and cleanse his lips, so to speak. You say, Brother Wally, why, why doesn't God tell us more about the seraphim? Because we didn't need to know more. See, God doesn't ever tell us all we want to know. God always tells us what we really need to know. Someday, we'll learn more today. That's what we have. But that isn't the only angelic order. No, go next, please, to Ezekiel chapter 5. There's a second order of angelic beings. I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, by the way, we're just pulling the curtain back on the unseen spiritual realm. I get it, this is not going to, stir your heart to some, you know, great service for Christ, but I want us to understand what's going on behind this curtain. Notice the second order there of angelic creatures, they're called the cherubim. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. Notice there are also four of these. And this was their appearance, they had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings. Notice the seraphim had six wings. These have four. The seraphim had one face. These have four faces. Verse 7, their feet were straight feet. The sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And so that's their appearance. Verse 8, they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. And they turned not when they went. Uh, They went everyone straight forward. Isn't that an interesting thing? They've got four wings. The tips of their wings are touching. And they never turn. And they never go in an angle. So if I was going to my chair and I'm a cherubim, I go like this. And then I go like that. They don't turn. Interesting. Say, why is that? I don't know. Listen, there's lots of stuff I don't know from the Bible. I'm interested in knowing anything he's told us, though. Verse 10, and as for the likeness of their face, they four had the face of a man. So he's going to describe their four faces. They each had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. Now, that sounds familiar. Remember, the seraphim each had one face, but they had only one of those four. The cherubim have all four of those faces. So that must look pretty weird. Yeah. It says, verse 11, thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. By the way, what that means is they had two that were joined and two that covered their bodies, uh, either like this or like this, we're not really told. But what that means is when they flew, they didn't flap their wings. The seraphim had six wings, and with two they flew. The cherubim have four wings, and they fly, but they don't flap their wings. Interesting. But it isn't just that that we know about them. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And when these went, these went. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Isn't that an interesting thing? Uh, They have a spirit, but it's not in them, it's in a wheel. And when they go up, the wheel goes up, and they go sideways, the wheel goes sideways. By, By the way, there's a lot of ways you can picture this stuff. This is just how God described it. But again, in similar manner to the seraphim, if you go up to chapter 10 in Ezekiel, and in those early chapters of Ezekiel, he doesn't specifically call them cherubim, but uh, over 30 times in the book of Ezekiel, 31 times, he speaks about these living creatures by name and calls them a cherub or a cherubim. Notice in this further description of them in Ezekiel chapter 10 in verse 8, and there appeared in the cherubim the form of a man's hand under their wings. When I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, another wheel by another cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearance, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. And when they went... They went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went. But to the place whither they had looked, they followed it, and they turned not as they went. And their whole body, and their backs, and their hands, and their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels uh, that they four had. So uh, you say, are those real eyes? They might be. Just like the seraphim are covered with eyes, these are covered with eyes. They might be like a peacock's tail that could be rightly described as an eye it might be symbolic, referring to the fact that they were completely self-aware of what was going on. I I don't know. It's a good question. Please don't get the wrong idea. I don't, and I'm incapable of fully picturing this creature just like you are. I'm just reading the description. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, you may remember, it said, and God placed some cherubims, he doesn't say how many, east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, to guard the Garden of Eden. He did not want Adam and Eve to go back, eat of the tree of life, and live forever in their sins. And he chose cherubim and a flaming sword, maybe in their hand, maybe not, maybe two, maybe four, who knows, to guard that. See, cherubim seemed to guard God's holiness in some way. Most of the time, they're mentioned 31 times in Ezekiel, but most of the time they're mentioned, they're mentioned over 90 times and seraphim only twice. Most of the time, they're mentioned in conjunction with the Jewish tabernacle because on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, were two cherubim who had their wings out like that and they had their head down constantly uh, in worship to God and looking down on the blood in the top of the mercy seat. The veil in the temple and the curtains, they all had cherubims engraved and sewn into them. They seem in some way to guard God's holiness. Uh, By the way, Lucifer, if you remember, was called the anointed cherub that covereth. And so in all likelihood, Lucifer prior to his rebellion against God was the head of those four cherubs before his rebellion. The third order of angels is the one with which we're most familiar. Not just seraphim, not cherubim, it's just regular old angels. The word angel appears 297 times in the Bible, 94 of those are plural. And like I said earlier, the word angel literally means messenger. We're not turning there, but if we were to go to Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus in His glory spoke to His seven churches in Asia, He began each message to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Thyatira and Philadelphia and Sardis and so on and so forth. The human messenger that Jesus had sent to each of those places. And again, sometimes in the Old Testament, when you read about the angel of the Lord, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and that angel will be behaving in a way that only God can behave. But most often, when we read the word angel, it is used to describe what we typically think of the special order of created beings we call angels. We're most familiar with these. We're most interested in these. We know more about these than any of the other creatures. There are three angels named in the Bible. There is the archangel, the highest and uh, utmost angel, Michael. He's often and mostly associated with the nation of Israel. There is Gabriel, the messenger angel. There's Lucifer, the fallen angel. Those are the only three angels mentioned by name in the Bible. There's an angel named Raphael mentioned in the apocryphal book, Tobit. But biblical Christians, as Jews, reject the book of Tobit as being the word of God, and so an angel named Raphael means nothing to us. It is a deception. There was an angel who appeared as an angel of light, who called himself Moroni, who appeared to Joseph Smith in 1823, And he allegedly gave Joseph Smith these golden tablets, and it was from those golden tablets and that false angel Moroni that the polygamous cult of the Mormons in the Church of Latter-day Saints started. So I don't think you should refer to them that way. Well, how would you refer to a group where their founder, Joseph Smith, is said to have had 40 wives? How would you refer to the group if the leader who replaced Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, had 56 wives? And he didn't take his 25th one until he was 67. And she was 24. How would you describe those people in that group? He said, well, I know some of them. They're nice people. Yeah, they are. Listen, nice people, that doesn't make you saved. What makes you saved is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the son of the living God. Now, there are a lot of common misconceptions about angels, and I think before we learn what they are, it's important to first learn what they're not. Now, most depictions of angels picture them with wings. Hear me when I say there is never a winged angel in the Bible, though they do fly. In appearance, when they are not manifesting the glory of God, they are oftentimes mistaken for men. And they always speak the language of whoever it is they are serving, guiding, or helping. There is no special language of angels in the Bible. Because they appear like men, that's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13:2, some have entertained angels unawares. When they've appeared, they eat human food, they drink the same liquids that the people that were with them drank. In fact, the manna that Israel ate in the wilderness is called angel's food in Psalm 78, 25. Seraphim have six wings, cherubim have four, angels do not have any wings at all. If you've paid any attention to artwork and the way people depict angels because it has nothing to do with how the Bible depicts angels, because people have a fascination with the spiritual realm far more than they have a fascination about what God says about the spiritual realm. You will very often see angels pictured as females. There is no such thing in the Bible as a female angel. If there are any, He didn't tell us about them. Other times you will see angels depicted as children, and nearly always they have wings. There is no child angel In the Bible, it is a common false doctrine among society that if a good person dies, they become a good angel and watch over their family. And if they are a bad person, they become a bad angel and trouble their family. Listen, humans and angels are two completely distinct creative orders from God. And when an angel appears and acts like a human being, understand, they are not a human being, they are still an angel. We spent a whole week in here (laughs) talking about the fact that when we die, if you're in Christ, you go immediately to be with God in heaven. And if you're not in Christ, you die in your sins and you immediately go to hell. We spent time, listen, I I get it. People have all kinds of crazy beliefs. I'm just here to teach you what the scriptures teach about angels. We're just Pulling back the curtain. Angels do not have wings. They're completely distinct and separate from humans because you and I as human beings alone are made in the image of God. But it's not just that we're made aware of three distinct groups of angelic creatures in the Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. In this third group of angels, there are two divisions. There are evil angels. And if you take notes, write Psalm 78, 49. And there are holy angels, H-O-L-Y. Notice in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, Jesus says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So notice what goes before him sitting upon the throne of his glory. He returns with His holy angels. The phrase holy angels occurs four times, all of them in the New Testament. The phrase His angels is used 17 times, but when the phrase is His angels, it isn't always God's angels. In fact, while we're in Matthew 25, look at verse 40 and 41. It says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, and everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we not only learn why God made hell, but we also learn that the devil, Lucifer, has his angels. So there are holy angels who are loyal to Christ and the creator of everything, and there are his angels that are loyal to Lucifer. Now, the other 14 times the phrase, His angels, occurs, all refer to angels that are loyal to God, their Creator. You say, what do they do? Well, we'll go into detail on that uh, next Sunday night, Lord willing. But if you go back to Matthew 13, notice in verses 41 to 43 of Matthew chapter 13, it says, The Son of Man shall send forth His angels. And they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend and them which do iniquity. Shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, Notice that Christ has his angels. Notice that as his kingdom, the kingdom of God that's within us today ends, his angels gather those who are not saved and they put them in hell. In verse 43, then shall the righteous shine forth as a son in the kingdom of their father. Prior to the thousand-year kingdom of Christ, the end of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus will return with his angels. They will separate the lost from the saved. His kingdom begins with all saved people. Say, well, if I'm living in the tribulation and I'm just going to hide from the Antichrist and I'm just going to sneak into the kingdom, nah, you won't. Yet you won't. Turn up a few pages to Matthew chapter 24 because it isn't just the unsaved that His angels, Christ's angels, gather at the end of the tribulation to put them in hell. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, notice what it says there. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Notice at the end of those seven years, his angels gather the elect. They gather gather true believers. By the way, it's not going to be a very safe place to be on the earth when Christ returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God and obey not his commandments. So how are believing people kept safe? God's angels keep them safe. There are holy angels. There are evil angels. And in the evil angels, there are some of them that are in chains. Take notes, write down Jude 6. So why are they in chains? Why, Why aren't they loose like the rest of his angels? I don't know. People speculate that it had something to do with physical relationships with women prior to Noah's flood. That's the most common speculation. I don't personally believe that but a lot of people speculate that. What I do know for sure is that there are evil angels loose and they are misleading and oppressing people in our world. They actively do the work of Satan. Paul calls them principalities and he calls them powers. He calls them spiritual wickedness in high places. You and I are exhorted to stay out of that world. See, for me just to talk about it, I I hesitate to do it because this unseen spiritual realm, it has this fascination uh, to our fallen nature. People in our culture who claim to have contact with the spiritual world, uh, they're called mediums. And by and large, they are frauds and fakes, but among the frauds and fakes are a few who genuinely can contact the spiritual realm, and it is those evil angels that they're talking to, who pretend to be neutral, who pretend to be good, and that's why God, among other things, said abstain from all appearance of evil. Those people take advantage of people who are hurting, someone who's missing a loved one and want something, they want to speak to them one last time. All kinds of things like that. And God has said to you and I, stay out of that stuff. Right. Say, so how many evil angels are there? I don't really know. I do know this in Revelation chapter 6. The angels who praise God and say worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, uh, it says the angels that sang that were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, which would minimally be 104 million. And if two thirds of the angels stayed loyal to their creator and one third was, uh, uh, was loyal to Lucifer and were deceived, that means there's minimally 52 million of them. Say, how many are chained? I have no idea, I hope most. But whenever you read in the scripture about someone being possessed, that's an evil angel. Now if you're a Christian, a true Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you cannot, as we learned when we talked about Satan, you cannot be possessed. But that doesn't mean you can't be influenced. That doesn't mean you can't be oppressed. I think probably if you talk to some of the more seasoned saints around here and ask them, have you ever really felt like Satan was personally through some evil angel attacking you or your family or something you were trying to do? I think probably every one of them at one time or another would say, I didn't know for sure, but I really felt like that was going on. Can I tell you what to do? The name of Jesus is a strong tower and the righteous runneth into it and is safe. For there is none other name given under heaven among men. Not just whereby we might be saved, but none other name other than the name of Jesus that every knee will bow to. get hold of Jesus, get a hold of his leg like Jacob got a hold of God's leg at Penuel and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. I always think, and I know I've told you this before, but I always think about that woman with the issue of blood who crawled on her hands and knees through the crowd that was so big around Jesus just reached out and grabbed the head of his garment and wouldn't let go. Listen, you ever really feel like you're really in the middle of a spiritual battle? That's what you do. There is no name like the name of Jesus. Don't play with this stuff. Run to Christ. You'd quietly stand.